Well, welcome. Hello. My name's Mike Barton, uh, and a special welcome if you've travelled uh, from far to be here. It's, um, it's lovely to have you with us. And um, last week, I found myself on LinkedIn. Is anybody uh, a member of LinkedIn here on the internet? Um, basically, it's a service uh, uh, which connects people around the world uh, who have some sort of professional expertise. It's a bit like Facebook, but more serious. And uh, it's a way of basically showing your CV to people uh, who you know, to your acquaintances. And there's also a, a Claygate network, which is why I wanted to, uh, to go on it, too, so I can connect with people locally and work out what's going on, etc., but it's a type of service that constantly bombards you with emails to log on if you've not been on for a while. So um, after a five-year hiatus, I finally caved in, and I thought, right, I'll go on it, because it was still pestering me. And um, it's really interesting, because when you go on it, for not being on it for a while, you see all your old friends and acquaintances, and you think, oh, I wonder what they've been up to. And so I was having a bit of a, a nosy uh, around there. And uh, some of the job titles that my friends now had were stunning. So uh, they had titles like Chief Investment Officer, Senior Vice President, Manager of Global Policy Affairs, and uh, my personal favourite was a Digital Beard Extraordinaire. I'm not quite sure what that was all about, but uh, you get the idea, don't you? But beneath all the fancy titles that these people had, you're also able to dig deeper into the profiles to see what experience these people have to back these job titles up. So with a click of your mouse on the computer or your tap on your mobile phone screen, you're able to see a person's work experience. And this helps you to discern a person's credentials for the job that they do. And uh, in our passage today that's just been read for us, we see something of Paul's credentials. We see Paul's Profile And what he does is he interrupts a prayer which he's just about to dive into. And he's going to pick it up later, uh, later on in verse 14 to give us a 13-verse interlude presenting his own credentials which qualify him to be God's apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul's not listing his work experience for his own benefit. The Ephesian church need to understand the authority that God has given to Paul if they're to believe his message and feel assured of their full inclusion as members of body, in the body of Christ. So in this interlude, Paul takes all the high theology that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks in the first few chapters, and he grounds it in his own personal experience of God's grace working out in his own life. In this way, the Ephesian church can, they can be confident that God's grace is also available to them. So as we look at Paul's credentials in this passage, I divide it up into three parts. You might have a batting order, uh, which you would have picked up on the way in. And uh, the three parts are Paul the prisoner, Paul the servant, and Paul the prophet. Let's uh, pray then, just as we really get going. Father, we thank you for appointing Paul to be your apostle to the Gentiles, people like us. And we pray that as we hear of Paul's life, you would help us to understand how the messages apply to us, that we would be challenged by it and be ready to receive from you by your spirit. Amen. 
So, if we can open up our Bibles to page 1174, if we've closed them, and we'll begin uh, with Paul the prisoner from verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. Well, firstly, we see that Paul was a prisoner according to God's purpose. Sorry, according to God's plan. And humanly speaking, Paul was a prisoner of the Roman Emperor Nero. Previously, when the Jews had uh, Paul imprisoned under charges of blasphemy and insurrection, and he'd even plotted to take his life during a prison transfer, Paul used his Roman citizenship to appeal to the Emperor Nero to have his case heard all the way in Rome. So now, as he's writing this letter, despite being under house arrest in Rome, Paul was so convinced that his imprisonment came under the higher authority of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that he sees himself as a prisoner according to God's plan. Paul believed that God's sovereignty was at work guiding human affairs, so mentally he refused to be trapped inside the confines of his physical location. Inside, Paul was free because he knew God's grace was able to spread far beyond any human walls. It's interesting that as part of my ordination training, I did a placement at Bullingdon Prison, which is just north of Oxford. And I was helping to lead the Alpha course. And in every prison, there is a portrait of the Queen. And it's there to remind the inmates that they are kept in Her Majesty's prison at Her Majesty's pleasure. But by time and time again, those who'd come on the Alpha course and found a living faith in Jesus Christ... Well, they spoke of how grateful they were to God to be in prison for the opportunity to spend time to learn more about Jesus, to pray, to worship on a Sunday as they first found their feet as a young Christian, and also to share with their fellow inmates about their newfound faith in Jesus. They found freedom in simply serving God where they were. How about us? Do we find freedom if we're struggling? Well, in the first six verses, we also see that Paul was a prisoner according to God's revelation. This revelation that was through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, Jew and Gentile have now been brought together. They had access to God together on equal footing. So Jesus died that all people might be forgiven of their sin and declared righteous before God. Well, this idea that Jew and Gentile now shared a common inheritance of an eternal relationship with God was simply mind-blowing. It marked the fulfillment of hundreds of years of Jewish history. Now, last week, Linda Morgan, who's sitting back there, shared a stunning picture with us. It came from the Jerusalem temple, and it was a, um, a stone. And it's so powerful, I want to share it here with you tonight. Because the stone that you can see there, it bears a warning inscription. And it says this, No foreigner is to go beyond the barrier and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. That was a punishment for any Gentile that trespassed too far in the temple. Goes way beyond the fine for parking on double red lines, doesn't it? So it's no wonder 
that many of Paul's fellow Jewish compatriots thought he was a crackpot for claiming that Gentiles now had equal access to God and they wanted him locked away. In modern times, it might be the equivalent of Kim Jong-un granting Obama access to North Korea on a tourist visa. It just wouldn't happen, would it? Indeed, if Paul hadn't previously met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he wouldn't have believed his own message. Because we know he'd previously gone around persecuting the early church and having believers sentenced to death. Everything changed when Paul had his revelation from Jesus. The mystery of Gentile inclusion that had been kept hidden for generations was now blown wide open that everybody could share in it. And Jesus personally entrusted Paul to be a key administrator or steward of this revelation for the sake of the Gentiles. Gentiles being people of non-Jewish origin. But by accepting this grace from God, Paul opened himself up to all sorts of suffering. Just as Jesus suffered on our behalf to take away the sins of the world, Paul was to suffer on behalf of the Gentiles for the sake of God's cause. For in his life and imprisonment, Paul now bore the weight of the division between Jew and Gentile. Trying to reconcile both parties together in Christ was the cross that Paul was called to bear. But he bore the weight gladly, knowing that his efforts brought glory to God. So where does that leave you and me? Well, I believe it should make us question how God's revelation has impacted our own life. How have the messages that you hear every Sunday when you come to Holy Trinity Claygate changed your own outlook and purpose? Because this passage gives a strong indication that if we're engaged with reconciling people to God and to each other, then we're likely to suffer on others' behalf. This might mean sacrificing part of our salary in support of Christian organisations that work to promote peace. If you're good at giving financial advice, then it might mean sacrificing some of your time to help those who struggle to manage their debts. If you're legally trained, it might mean helping people who can't afford legal advice. If your house is bigger than your current requirements, then it might mean taking a lodger in, somebody who needs a room. Or if you're at college, it might mean looking out for that person that doesn't have many friends or perhaps who is new or unpopular. Well, in addition, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're always swimming with the tide of worldly culture, maybe now is the time to do a litmus test of your faith. When I stop to think about the Christian heroes that inspire me, people like William Wilberforce, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Desmond Tutu, all of them had to face opposition for standing up for the cause of God on behalf of others. They were willing to stick their heads above the parapet for the sake of God's higher plan. Are you? Is there an injustice locally, nationally or internationally that exercises your heart? When you see unjust division 
Are you prepared to challenge it? Or do you rather just let it ride? Could God be entrusting you to suffer for his cause and glory today? If you are currently suffering or making sacrifices for the sake of the gospel and to help others, then I pray God to strengthen you in this role as a steward of his grace and also to confirm the surety of his call in your life. Well, having challenged you with your response to God's revelation, I want to now encourage you by taking time to think about Paul's response. In verse 7, we see Paul became a servant of this gospel of Gentile reconciliation to God, and with it, reconciliation with the Jews. But the first thing we see about Paul the servant is that Paul was a servant according to God's power. It was a gift of God's grace that Paul wasn't expected to serve God in his own strength. Rather, Paul promised to supply him with all the resources he needed. Paul describes himself as less than the least of all the Lord's people. And in fairness, given Paul's murderous history, it was probably a very good title. As a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Paul was the person you'd least expect to reconcile the Gentiles to God. But God has a habit of making great reversals and working in surprising ways. It's also probable that Paul uh, spoke of being less than the least of all the Lord's people because he's poking fun at himself, his own name and stature. For his name actually means little or small. And tradition has it that Paul was a little man, even shorter than me. Well, you can sense from Paul's writing how unworthy he feels to be a servant of God. Yet at the same time, how thankful he is to God for his grace and call. Paul was grateful to be God's servant according to God's commission. Paul's commission was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I find it ironic that Paul's task, if it wasn't hard enough after a hundred years of Jewish prejudice coming against him, that the good news God asked Paul to deliver was virtually impossible to fully comprehend. So massive were the implications for the Gentiles. A few weeks ago, John White described them like being swimming through piles and piles of gold coins. There was that many riches. Some of these riches that we've encountered so far in the book of Ephesians, they include resurrection from the death of sin, a victor's crown with Jesus in the heavenly realms, reconciliation with God, an end to hostility and the beginning of peace, access to the Father through Jesus by means of the Spirit, being adopted into the family of God, membership of God's kingdom, becoming a building block of God's new temple where he dwells by his Spirit. And this is just a foretaste of God's glorious plan. It's no wonder us preachers occasionally find ourselves befuddled. It's even more ironic, though, when in verse 9, God's commission to Paul is to make all these inexhaustible riches plain for everybody to see. Well, God certainly has a sense of humour, and that's one of the reasons why serving him is such a joy. So what can we learn from Paul the servant that is applicable to our own service of God? Well, firstly, 
We know, don't we, that God doesn't call us to serve him because of our own strength, power or might. That's why two of the aims of our recent Life to the Full mission were to make us more dependable on God in prayer and also to bring glory to God. So if the task that God has put before you seems too big by human terms, then you're probably in the right place. Conversely, if you're sitting comfortable in your Christian service, then it's doubtful you're maturing as a Christian as much as you could. What could you do to stretch your own faith and trust that God will work his power through you to fill in the gaps? Secondly, if you feel unworthy of God's calling, again you're in the right place. It's only in humility that we're able to gratefully serve God as we should. It's with a repentant attitude in our hearts, acknowledging the ways we've offended God's purposes, that we're truly able to understand his grace. When we realise that God calls us to serve him despite ourselves, then we're really able to turn to him with thanks and praise. So if you're sitting here feeling tonight unworthy of serving God, either because you're too young, too inexperienced, too old, you've previously rejected him or turned away, you've committed a serious crime or sin, or you just simply let things slide, then don't let this stop you from honouring God's call on your life moving forward. If you're serious about serving God and you feel an exciting nervousness bubble up now, then why don't you obey his call to lay down your life before him, to say sorry for not committing before, and pray, Lord, use me to serve your purposes now. And at the end of the service, if you want to chat this through with myself or Stuart or anybody on the ministry team, we'd love to talk to you. Well, the third thing to consider is the riches of the mysteries of God's plans that have now been revealed in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. If you come to church and find the gospel a bit boring, then you've probably not understood it correctly. There are so many facets to the riches of God's grace that if we truly grasp them, we'd make coming to church the first priority in the week. And I know many of you do that. The riches of God's grace should inspire us to come to church hungry to learn more and expectant to receive more of his power. And this is why I now want to move on to talk about Paul the prophet. The Bible tells us that the Lord does nothing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets. A prophet takes the divine revelation of God and he communicates it to the people through words or through symbolic actions. Well, Paul was a prophet according to God's intent. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus told him to be a witness to what he had seen and would see of Jesus in the future. Paul was to open the eyes of Jew and Gentile in order to turn them from darkness to light. And one of the key prophetic roles which God gave Paul was to make his life and message the model for the New Testament church to follow. Paul understood 
that God's intent in verse 10 was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Paul was a prophet according to God's purposes for the church. And if you only come away from tonight with one message, then I want it to be this, that the church is more important in the eternal purposes of God than we can ever imagine or believe. The body of Christ gathered together in unity is both the means and the end of God's plan to reconcile people to himself and also with each other. Now, you may have heard of the humorous uh, evangelist called J. John. He likes to be creative when explaining what uh, he does for a living. And he tells a wonderful story of sitting next to a lady uh, at Heathrow Airport. And he asks her, what do you do for a living? And um, she says, I work for a famous uh, fashion designer. Why, what do you do? And uh, J. John uh, replies in his own inimitable way, well, I work for a global enterprise. She says, really, do you? To which J. John says, and do you know, we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. She says, have you? He says, yes, and there are only six countries in the world where we don't have an outlet. Really, she exclaims. Yes, he says, and we've got hospitals and homeless shelters and hostels and feeding programmes and orphanages and we do marriage work, justice work, reconciliation work. Basically, we look after people from birth to death and we work in the area of behavioural alteration. And she goes, wow, really, what's it called? And J. John says, it's called the church. Have you heard of it? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are part of this global enterprise called the church, which grew out of the witness of Paul and a few others 2,000 years ago. Our task as members of God's global church, is to play our role in bringing reconciliation to God amongst our local community and the watching world around. Are we here up for that challenge? Well, before we all wave our hands in the air and go whoop, whoop, I know we don't do that much at Claygate, but before we, just in case there's a risk of it, um, in verse 10, um, what I wanted to see is that Paul was a prophet according to, to God's audience. Because in verse 10, Paul gives us the peculiar thought that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God was to be made known, not to the rulers and authorities on the earth, but to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What's that all about? It sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Surely the church's primary witness should be to the physical community in which it's based. Well, for Paul, the church's witness spreads way beyond mere flesh and blood. And the Ephesian church need to know this because as they're looking at Paul, they might be tempted to look on his his imprisonment and question whether following his example of being bonded together to follow Christ with the Jews is really worth it. Does it make a difference in a world obsessed with money and power? So Paul wants to remind the Ephesians not to look at the earthly circumstances because the audience is much bigger than they have ever imagined. 
until the Ephesians understand the cosmic nature of the gospel and the church's witness, then they'll underestimate the reach of it and their part in it. Put simply, there's a spiritual world out there which we don't quite understand, but to whom our actions witness to. And as the church brings together believers from every tribe, nation, race, colour, creed, tongue, under the reconciling banner of Jesus Christ, we witness to God's glorious plan like nothing else can. So what does God's priority for the church mean for us? Well, firstly, to make the most obvious point, if the church, and by that I don't mean the, uh, the building or any particular denomination, I mean the people who follow Jesus, if the church was God's plan, the way that God had decided to make his wisdom known, do we share the same vision? If God has purposed his church to be the instrument for reconciliation with him and ending in division in society, are we aligned with God's vision by committing ourselves to it? Whilst the nations of the world seek to demarcate territory for themselves through aggression and might, will we work together to knock down barriers of racism and hate? Secondly, and particularly in the West, with atheism on the rise and church attendance declining, we can fall into the trap of believing that our own witness is weak. But Paul has shown that we shouldn't underestimate the power of believers coming together in prayer and worship. You'll have seen those pictures of the earth taken from space. And as you look and see light emanating from the villages, towns and cities... They reveal signs of life. Well, in the same way, no matter how insignificant we feel, wherever two or more people gather in the name of Jesus Christ, there shines a beacon of light, witnessing to the heavenlies that God is here working his purposes out. Indeed, uh, when we stop to think about this cosmic witness, if you're a member of a a small group or or any group that gets together to talk about Christian matters, then we should probably think about renaming what we do here. Because small small groups, the description doesn't suffice. We should think about calling them beaming light groups or impact groups or massively purposeful groups for God. Something which just describes better what is going on in that small group. Praying, witnessing to the heavenly realms. So by way of conclusion, having seen Paul's credentials and profile as a prisoner, as a servant and as a prophet of God's grace, what impact should today's message have on us as a church? If we imagine Holy Trinity Claygate had a LinkedIn profile What do you think onlookers would make of our own collective witness to Jesus? Would they see as a body of people who care enough to suffer on behalf of others in order to help people start a relationship with God? And then if we delve deeper to consider our own individual commitment to God's vision for the church, how might our own individual CVs or profiles shape the church's experience, enabling onlookers to see God's grace 
and believe that it's also available to them. Amen.